I have a fairly good sense that once all teachers and staff are vaccinated and once those with serious underlying health conditions are vaccinated and those 65 and above are vaccinated, my prediction is I think we'll be back in the fall. Day 311 of quarantine is done, and parents, here's where we are. Two masks are the new single mask. The vaccine cluster continues across the country, and it feels like distance learning will never end. Ray Romano said it best. Having children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, and there's a lot of throwing up. And welcome to the inaugural episode of PDQ, Parenting During Quarantine. I'm Sarah Croco, and I'm joined by my longtime friend and colleague, Leah Windsor. Hello, Leah. Oh, Sarah, are we really doing this? We are. I've heard podcasts are all the rage. And for our listeners, here's a little bit about how we got here. Around about March 13th of 2020, uh, I realized pretty quickly that we were going to be home with our daughters 24-7. My daughters, for future reference, are six and eight. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if parents had some sort of resource to look to for ideas of activities they could do with their kids, what TV shows to watch, what crafting projects to do, but also just a source of parental support for one another. And I thought, you know, this would just be me and my friends and maybe friends of friends. And it turned into something much bigger than I ever imagined, nearly 5,000 people on Facebook uh, in a group that reaches across the world. And it turned into this really cool place online on Facebook where people could go and ask questions, even just vent about this really unique situation that we all find ourselves in. I also realized pretty quickly that once the membership started growing exponentially that I would need a partner in crime and Leah very kindly volunteered and she has been an integral part of the group ever since. So that's where our group on Facebook, Parenting Under Quarantine, that's how it got started. And now we've realized that You know, podcasting might be a great way to kind of extend our reach and uh, see if we can help more people out. So to launch us into this new adventure, we're joined by our first guest, a brilliant doctor who happens to be a good friend of mine. I'm so happy to welcome Dr. Susan Chang. Dr. Chang serves as an assistant professor and department chair at the College of Education and Health Services at Benedictine University in suburban Chicago. Her impressive body of work has focused on epidemiology, maternal and child health, special populations and mental health. Dr. Chang, let's get right into it. Thanks for having me on the inaugural podcast. I'm honored and privileged to be here. Susan, you spent a good portion of your career studying previous pandemics and looking at how society responded. How does what we're dealing with right now compare to other epidemics and how are we doing with this one? I think that's a very complicated and interesting question, Sarah. The last pandemic of this century was actually the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. Uh, The vast majority of adults uh, actually lived through that. I think it had a very small effect on a lot of people. Uh, Most of my friends are probably in about the same life stage as I am. We're working professionals, juggling school-aged children along with a career. In 2009, most of our children were either infants or toddlers. Maybe we hadn't become parents yet. So I think how a pandemic affects you also affects how much of an event that you remember. 
If I could just ask about the previous epidemics that are related to coronaviruses. So when we experienced, when the world, I should say, experienced SARS and MERS, I remember reading about those in the newspaper and hearing about individual cases. I think with SARS, there was some in Canada. And, you know, it caught a lot of headlines for maybe one or two weeks. And I heard a lot more about it in Asia. But was that a case of the U.S. kind of dodging a bullet or because the nature of those viruses was just different than the one that we're facing now? Or, you know, kind of what is your perspective as an epidemiologist as to how those viruses played out globally compared to how SARS-CoV-2 is playing out? In a lot of ways, the Western Hemisphere dodged a bullet when it came to SARS and MERS. SARS had a case fatality rate of almost 11%, so over one in 10 individuals infected died of SARS. Um, MERS had an, a case fatality rate of over a third, so one in three individuals who had MERS um, would die of the disease. The difference was that there are certain aspects of a virus that are necessary for it to become a pandemic, right? We see outbreaks of viruses all the time. We see outbreaks of viruses that are more fatal than COVID-19 all the time, including Ebola, which just resolved at the beginning of 2020, the most recent outbreak. As you just said, you know, pandemics are not a new thing. So what's the way out of this? So I think that's a great question, Leah. I think we can take it from what the individual in the household can do. Just for a little bit of background, since Sarah had introduced herself this way also, I have a second grader and I have a seventh grader. So I have a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I'm a working professional as well. I think from a individual household level perspective, one of the things that we have done is to take very seriously the idea that if each of us works together, we can come to the end of this pandemic much faster. Um, we only go out when we absolutely need to do so. We wear a mask whenever we go out. We keep our distance from other individuals who are not part of our household. We limit the amount of time that we spend out. Um, so if we desperately need to go get something at a pharmacy, we do that, but we go in with a plan in place. We go get it, we pay, and we leave. Um, we haven't done any kind of browsing <laughs> or just lingering in any public spaces since the beginning of March. Um, my children are currently remote and they will stay that way. So we are all home 24 seven, 52 weeks of the year. Um, but I will say as someone who also studies the social determinants of health and studies the health disparities that COVID-19 has, has shown such a large light on, that is certainly a privilege. And I fully recognize and am grateful for the privilege that my husband and I can work from home and our children can school from home. Next question. We're hearing a lot of, lately about these so-called new variants of COVID. We've only just begun the vaccine rollout, and now this, it just seems like such a kick in the shins. How worried should we be about these new variants? And what do parents need to know in terms of protecting their kids from this? Is this something that calls for new behaviors, or is what we're already doing kind of the best tool we have? So something to keep in mind with variants is that viruses can change who it infects, how it infects them, and the seriousness of that infection once you become exposed. So I think certainly it is a reminder that until we have this particular pandemic under hand and um, in control, the risk is not over and the danger is not over. For a day-to-day -day practicality standpoint as a parent, what I would say is that once again, limit the amount of interaction you have with households, uh, members that are not in your own household. So if you've become a little bit more lax because community rates are going down, 
just know that these new variants have arrived. Um, the South African variant has arrived. The one from the UK has arrived. These could potentially change the next two months and what that looks like in COVID. I think from a vaccine perspective, there's been early research to show that most of the vaccines that are out there are still going to be fairly effective at preventing serious illness if you become exposed to COVID-19. I remember you and I talking about the vaccine and how, how this whole moment of COVID-19 has really been this generation's moonshot experience where it took so much working together of so many people and so many experts all over the world, really truly global, right? When the Chinese scientists first sequenced the genome of COVID-19 to when we had these vaccine you know, manufacturers all over the world working on this, that we have come so far so quickly as a human race has been extraordinary. I mean, it's really inspiring, right? So in a lot of ways, you know, I personally know so many scientific labs that converted whatever research they were working on to specifically COVID-19. We have never come up with a vaccine this quickly that is this effective and this safe. So what's been fascinating to me to watch, you know, we've all seen Dr. Fauci out in front, you know, for most of this, he's become the kind of the face of this pandemic for Americans. And I always feel badly for him because it must be such a struggle to try to convey scientific and health advice as we're learning, right? As you were saying, like this is the public seeing science in action for the first time. How do people in epidemiology or in public health kind of deal with these messaging challenges and how to keep people safe and not scare them too much, but scare them enough so that they take it seriously? That's a really great question. Um, I think one of the strengths of public health is that we are very interdisciplinary. Um, epidemiology studies the trends in population health at a population level, whereas my colleagues in health education and health behavior and health promotion have an incredibly important job. And I would say it's a very nice partnership when the different disciplines work together. Um, so I'll use a couple of examples of what we've done in the past. I think one of the main challenges uh, for certain in the 21st century, especially in 2021, is that we have so much information. It's actually the opposite of what we've had in previous centuries. Now with the internet and with Google searches or just internet searches, you have more information than you could possibly consume. Um, even early on in COVID, the amount of information that flooded the internet was significantly greater than most individuals actually needed to learn about the virus. So I think one of the great challenges then is how do you weed through all of the noise to get to the most important pieces of information that help you? So I think having too much information is part of it. I think becoming a critical consumer of information is a skill set that people hone over time. I think we certainly try to impress upon it when we have K through 12 education and science. We certainly try and impress upon it um, if you end up going to college and studying those processes. But even as adults, I think we're all kind of growing up with the internet age at the same time that the technology is growing up. And knowing how to critically look at sources of information and decide what is a reliable source and what might be more opinion and what might be misinformation, I think that's a very important skill. The other part of it, I think, especially in the United States, is this kind of tug and pull between personal freedoms and the greater good, the greater public good, right? 
I think a lot of the mass debate, if we call it that, tends to be about individuals who feel that their personal freedoms are being impinged at a state or local level by government officials who are trying to tell them how to live their lives. Um, I think two really good examples when we look at how messaging works would be HIV and looking at automobile accidents and deaths. I think for those of us who grew up in the AIDS and HIV era, we certainly understand that messaging of, we wear condoms to protect ourselves and our partners. I would say wearing a mask is very similar, right? So the kinds of messaging around wearing a condom to prevent getting HIV is very similar to wearing a mask to prevent getting COVID-19. I feel like that was in every single health class from like third grade through high school. And so I understand that, of course, you use a condom and don't have sex with random people. But like, I wonder if the age group above us who wasn't exposed to this constant public health, if they view COVID differently. The other example we can look at is automobile accidents. Um, since the 2000s, we have put in significantly greater public health policies that decrease the number of deaths from automobile accidents. We've mandated um, such policies as car seats and seatbelts, anti-lock brakes, we have airbags, we have those um, absorption materials in highways where you meet cement bunkers, you know, all those trash can looking things that are filled with water or sand. Um, we have crumble zones on cars. None of them alone would completely um, decimate the fatality rate of automobile um, accidents. But used together, we've seen that while the number of accidents hasn't significantly moved um, the needle, the number of deaths caused in an automobile accident has plummeted significantly as we increase all of these public health policies. What are your thoughts on reopening schools? Um, I know it's a controversial topic and, um, you know, lots of parents are concerned that the kids are not in school and that they're suffering mental and emotional harm, um, that they're missing an entire year of learning and socializing. Um, is this fear real? Is getting kids back in the classroom something that you've thought about? Or what are your thoughts on that? So I've been following the debate pretty closely. As I mentioned, I have a second grader and a seventh grader. So I have an elementary um, level kid and a junior high level kid. And my husband and I have made the personal choice to keep our children remote until he and I are vaccinated, um, preferably until our 12 year old's vaccinated because now that she's 12, she is much more like an adult than she is like a child's um, from a biological perspective. Um, and certainly until our teachers and staff and our local uh, school district are vaccinated. Um, but that's our personal decision. I think when we look at whether or not it's safe for kids to be in school, it's really difficult to tease out that particular aspect because once again, we're not testing enough. There are a lot of arguments, especially in the most recently published literature, that schools are potentially safe for children. In the study coming out of Wisconsin that looked at the school districts in the rural parts of Wisconsin, the main limitation was that they weren't testing everyone. I think if you're doing surveillance testing of antibodies and of um, antigen, and you're doing it twice a week, every week for several weeks, you can make some very interesting discussions about whether or not that's a safe environment. Short of that, all we know is that there were not as many documented cases among children and teachers and staff um, as there were in the community. That doesn't mean that there weren't as many cases. It doesn't mean that there weren't more cases. It just means that there weren't 
more diagnosed cases that were reported to the local health departments. So I think looking at one study in the Midwest to make national guidelines about whether or not schools are safe to reopen is incredibly dangerous. I think we need to have significantly more data. And the way that I've reframed this in my mind is to think about school reopenings like thinking about clinical trials for drugs and vaccines, right? And any vaccine or therapeutic, there are always clinical trials. There's a phase one, there's a phase two, there's a phase three, and then they go for FDA approval or in the case of the vaccines, emergency use authorizations. We can think of the private schools that have been in session since the fall as being phase one, right? They went out first and we have some data on whether or not parochial schools and private schools that have been in session now for four or five months, whether or not they've had a lot of cases. I see the reopening of public health or public school systems across the country as a phase two trial on whether or not schools being reopened is safe. We're about to get a whole lot of data in the next two months across many school districts across the United States to see if going back hybrid is going to be safe. Um, for me and my family, we're waiting for phase three. We're waiting until we get more data to know that schools are safe to reopen. So given all that we've just talked about, where do you think we're gonna be as a society in six months? I have a fairly good sense that once all teachers and staff are vaccinated and once those with serious underlying health conditions are vaccinated and those 65 and above are vaccinated, my prediction is I think we'll be back in the fall. Susan, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Benedictine University is so lucky to have you and your expertise. You have been my, what was that, like guiding light through all of this. Like I remember talking to you back in like March and you're like, this is going to suck. This is not going to be nice. And when you said, you said, you're like, oh yeah, about a year. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> you're like, oh yeah. And you said a year, like in September. Um, and you've always been right. Next time on Parenting During Quarantine, we talk to Kevin Thomas and Marcellus Harper from Collage Dance Collective in Memphis, Tennessee, about teaching kids and adults the fine art of ballet over Zoom. Be sure to like and subscribe, check out what our other episodes are talking about, and tell your friends about our new adventure. If you want to learn even more, join our 5,000-member Facebook community by searching for Parenting Under Quarantine on Facebook. This has been Parenting During Quarantine. From our bubble to yours, keep hanging in there.